I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. From the moment sleep-deprived parents moan about the toddler years, we're prepared for the awfulness of the teenage years. We're told that teenagers no longer need their parents, and it's reassuring to think that in a bid to make that separation of parent and child easier, our teenagers turn into mean, selfish people in their bid for independence. That their difficult natures and moodiness make it easier for us, their doting parents, to let go. They're essentially being cruel to be kind. My guest today disputes this idea, insisting that if we are adept enough at understanding our teens, these challenges can bring great joy. Dr. Terry Apter is a psychologist and author whose 10 books have explored relationships within the family dynamic. She says it was a conversation with her daughter who inspired her to challenge this theory. She says, we were on the train from Cambridge to London. She must have been about six. She remarked that when she was older, she'd be able to come to London with me more often. I responded that when she was a teenager, she wouldn't want me with her. She looked shocked and sorrowful. A thought that was painful for me was also painful to her. I came to wonder whether current theories about adolescence were correct. Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. I'd love to start with exploring this myth that teenagers are a nightmare and that essentially they are divorcing their parents. Yes, that's exactly the term that Anna Freud used when she was describing adolescence. And she was at the forefront of um, talking about adolescence um, as a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, because it was... The whole notion of adolescence came very late to psychological theory. So it wasn't until, um, you know, the the 30s, 1930s, 1940s, that people even began to speak about um, adolescence uh, from a a psychological point of view. And Anna Freud said that it was a teen parent version of psychological divorce, that the teen was divorcing the parent, uh, separating from the parent. And this was a way to understand the teen's behavior, that the teen was rude, rebellious, irritable, that all of these upheavals are part of the rupture that one thinks of as divorcing someone who has been very close to you. Now, this um, model I think is linked to another myth, and it's linked to the myth that in order to be a proper 
human adult, you have to be independent. You have to be separate. You have to stand on your own two feet, not be too influenced or too dependent on people close to you. It's uh, really the what I think of as the Marlborough Man myth, you know, the idea that... Um, you know, uh, glory, value um, is in, you know, being alone, uh, being your own guy, really. And the idea that to have your identity formed, you have to be separate from other people. So in psychology, the notion of individuation, being your own self, having your own identity was always paired with separation. You become an individual, your own person, by separating from, you know, the parents who have guided you. And that was how adolescence was seen. And again, based on the myth that that's what a good grown-up person is, someone who's really separated from other people. And so... Talk me through why we think that that is not the case. Because, I mean, I look at my life now, I'm married, and actually I really rely on the support of my husband, but also my sisters, my parents, um, and my friends. It's, you know, without them, I would be far less strong and far less able to navigate life. Well, indeed, it's really very difficult to understand once you see some a problem with a theory it's very difficult to um, understand why it was accepted for so long but I think it was as a stereotype and one enabling aspect of the stereotype was that you know until the end of the 1980s until the 1990s uh, psychologists were not looking at uh, female adolescents. They were only looking at boy teens. And when you look at boy teens, it's a little bit more plausible because uh, they do like personal boundaries. They aren't so upfront about their connections. When I started looking at girl teens in the 1990s, I saw something so different that they were still very attached to their parents, still working very hard at this relationship, wasn't always going well, they weren't always, um, you know, working at it efficiently, but clearly it was something that mattered to them. And I thought at the time that that was something that was true of girl teens and not of boy teens. So more recently, um, I, as well as other people, have been taking a new look at boy teens as well. And you see that what you learn about girl teens applies to boy teens as well. We really got it wrong about what adolescence was all about. And if you looked at what was happening in the here and now, you know, looking at the conversations, looking at the arguments, hearing what parents said about teens, what teens said about parents, you could see that something else was going on. Um, and this was much better than stepping back and um, saying, um, you know, according to some theory, what's going on. Another thing that really changed the way we think about adolescence was derived from the um, new brain imaging techniques that um, started being in play in the late 1990s and very much into today. So we have um, 
magnetic resonance imaging and functional magnetic resonance imaging that allows us to see activity in the brain, how it's working, and also its structure. You couldn't do that on living brains before this. And so now what you have is a better image of how the brain is uh, developing structurally during adolescence, how it's very different from a child's brain or a grown-up's brain. That there's a big mass of uh, gray matter and that that Gray, that mass is gradually being pruned so that the work, the brain works much more efficiently. And at the same time, the connections are growing and becoming more robust. And so different parts of the brain are communicating um, better with one another, in particular, that prefrontal executive uh, lobe of the brain in adolescence is communicating very inefficiently with the more emotional limbic part of the brain, but that improves at the end of adolescence. And teens are uh, processing social, their social world in a very different way from either children or grown-ups. And um, so understanding that adolescence is a really a key phase of development and that the task is far more complicated than the developmental task that was previously seen, that of separating from the parents. Uh, you know, it's much more nuanced, uh, much more creative. So that was, again, a reminder that you really have to take a new look at adolescence. I mean, the key, of the kind of crux of this is that you know, for decades, we've misunderstood our teens. Yes. They're sort of almost crying out for help, going, no, I do need your support. Yes. We've been interpreting as it, it as, well, you don't need me anymore, so yes. fine. <laughs> yes. um, how does this happen in real life? What is typical behaviour? How did we potentially previously interpret it? And what are they actually trying to say to us? Well, one of the things that you hear uh, parents say regularly is, I can never say the right thing, or my teen always criticizes me. You know, I can never do anything right. And, you know, I might as well not say anything. They don't want to hear me talk. Um, and that is wrong. They do want to hear you. Let's start with that. Um, I always say the wrong thing. And, you know, I might as they don't want to hear me talk. They actually do want to hear you talk. Um, but they're a hypercritical of it because they want you to get it right. I mean, teens have high expectations of their parents. They've learned in childhood to have high expectations of a parent's response. You know, think about a parent with an infant, that um, close, curious, loving focus on what the infant is feeling, what that gesture means, what the facial expression means, what this movement means. I want to understand who my child is and I want to respond accordingly. And this continues in many respects throughout childhood. Not getting it right all the time, absolutely, but nonetheless that engaged, curious, loving focus 
And so they have, um, so, you know, they come, most teens come into adolescence having high expectations of their parents. So when a parent um, says something that suggests they're out of date, they're not keeping up to date with who the teen is, or they haven't got what the teen wants to be or who the teen hopes they might be, then you know, they'll criticize it that, you know, you don't get it, you don't understand it. Um, And it can be something very simple, like, um, we're going to visit your cousin, I know you like seeing him. I don't like seeing him. Why do you think I, you know, I used to, but I don't, Um, you know, you look lovely. Um, That isn't what I'm aiming for. I don't want to look lovely. I want to look, you know, smart or um, distinctive, unique. You know, you've got the word wrong and I, I need you to get it right. I want to sort of shake you into a new awareness of um, who I am and who I'm becoming. So, you know, that's, um, they're, they're critical in order to correct and update that very important resonance because they want that, you know, that sort of click, that satisfying click that someone understands me, someone really important to me understands me, and the parent is really important to them. So what should our response be in that kind of situation? Because part of me sort of feels like, okay, I'll give up then, fine. Oh, oh, well, I mean, that's really interesting because what I've noticed is that when parents interpret that, um, you know, you don't get it, you don't understand as, oh, okay, you want me to step back, I understand you want to separate, I understand you're being difficult, I understand that there's no business talking, you know, you can't get it right with the teen, so I'll give up. When they have that mindset, um, then uh, quarrels are more common and more likely to escalate. Um, But when they see this as, um, oh, my teen is trying to get me to take another look, look more closely. This is an identity reminder. um, And I have to sort of re-gauge my attention and see what it is my teen is trying to say. Then those little barks, (laughs) those little, um, you know, the little glitches um, actually become opportunities um, to get together again and, and to revitalize the relationship. So it isn't easy because, you know, parents um, have their pride and they also have their uh, own concerns. You know, they'll sometimes be stressed. And so, um, you know, the, the immediate sense of criticism, you, you're not saying the right thing, you know, you you bark back. Um, But with the overarching mindset of my teen is, you know, trying to update me, trying to communicate with me and wants me alongside, that goes a long way to um, breaking down the anxiety and, and the insult that parents often feel that makes the relationship much more tense and more volatile. 
And often in that situation, it's quite difficult to have a conversation to say, rather than say, to say, God, you're just a difficult teenager, to say, oh, I hadn't realised that. Yeah, Is it better yeah. to have that conversation then and there or leave it a bit and then revisit it so that you're signalling to them, I hear you, I heard you, and actually I do want to find out more about you? Well, you know, it isn't easy. It isn't easy getting to know a teen. And so some teens will you know, they're, they're already, um, you know, in a state of higher negative arousal. Uh, I'm cross with my mom, um, say. And so you um, can cut that. So they may not be willing to uh, follow up the conversation then. They may, um, you know, need a little time to calm down. Sometimes um, they may be willing to talk right then and there, but a lot of dealing with a teen is uh, looking out for those windows of opportunity um, to talk and, um, you know, showing that you're willing and that you're not rejecting the teen because, uh, you know, you yourself are not closed to conversation. Um, and sometimes it does take a while especially if it's a very heated issue about, you know, strong emotions. So another aspect of teens is that their emotions do tend to be very strong, um, you know, what's called reactive, um, you know, high arousal, um, a lot of tension. They're working very hard to understand their own emotions and um, they use a much more or are developing a much more nuanced language about emotions. So sometimes a parent will say, well, you know, um, I can see you're really angry. And a teen will say, well, no, that's not it. I'm frustrated or I'm not angry. I'm enraged, something like that. Um, and so they they are working to develop a much more subtle and, you know, uh, language for emotions, complex language of emotions, but they're not yet able to manage these. And that accounts for a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the high, you know, it's not hormones, it's um, dealing with uh, understanding how complex emotions are, being very interested in their own emotions, and yet being um, unable brain-wise to manage them. So um, sometimes they need just time to settle down before they can talk about something. But good advice, I think, to a parent is when a teen says, I don't want to talk and, you know, leave me alone. Um, it's not a question of, not a matter of not asking more questions or learning not to talk about it, but learning to ask better questions and waiting for the opportunity where your teen does seem about ready to say something to you or uh, will listen to something you say and asking calmly, you know, specific questions indicating you want to be led by the teen. You want information. You don't know. You're not going to tell the teen what they think you really want to know um, what it is they think. And of course, this can be very difficult for parents, especially when those 
emotions are negative. You know, you don't want to hear your um, teens say, um, you know, my, my life is awful and no one likes me and I feel hopeless and I don't like myself. Um, and sometimes parents need to listen to that and talking about that can one help the teen define the emotion more clearly and defining, you know, naming to tame that really works with emotions and also reminding the teen that that isn't all they feel. So, you know, no one likes me. Um, you know, are you sure? What about what about your sister? What about your dog? What about me? What about another friend? Just reminding them that that negative emotion, which seems like the whole world in that moment, isn't necessarily the whole world. And is it quite normal for teens to have this sort of catastrophic yes. idea of their lives? Because I think possibly one of the reasons parents find it really difficult to address that is that it's terrifying. You know, the yes. idea that yeah. our teens are desperately unhappy, that potentially have yes. catastrophic mental health problems. It's a very, very scary thing for us to address. Yes. And I suppose if we have the knowledge that these emotions and feelings are pretty standard for teens and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a sort of yeah. big psychological breakdown on our hands. Yes. Well, um, so I think accepting that um, negative emotions um, are necessary, we have to learn how to uh, deal with them. Uh, some parents and some teens themselves and some teachers believe that teens should be uh, protected from def difficult emotions. I mean, that's one of the um, one of the theories behind uh, the widely used uh, practice of trigger warnings. You know, let me warn you that something unpleasant is coming up, and I want to protect you from it. We can't. Uh, w um, parents co-regulate their children and their teens. You know, they. They help calm a uh, child down. In, te in uh, you know, with a teenager, you have to find new ways. You used to be able to hug a, <laughs> hug a child. Um, you can't always hug a teen in the same way, but sometimes you can just sit with a teen. So you can help the teen regulate, manage that panic, that sense of catastrophe. Um, but um, they have to learn what it's like to weather these difficult emotions, to sit back, let it ride through them, you know, with breathing um, and, and then just let it, un experiencing also that it, that it ebbs, you know, that it overwhelms them, but then it, it can go. And that kind of experience will give them much more strength in, you know, handling the next big downtime. But when you say our teens, um, you know, this uh, catastrophizing is this um, typical of teens. Yes, it is. But the other point is their um, elation when something um, goes well and, you know, their, their excitement. And 
sometimes that excitement um, is wonderful and sometimes it's very dangerous because, you know, think of the excitement for adventure they have, particularly when they're with their friends and that can lead to them taking, you know, risks that, you know, you say, my, my teen did this, my teen is smart. That's something. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thing only a stupid person would do, but it, you know, smart teens can become stupid in the moment. It's 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 um, you know looking at the whole world through the mood of the moment that is very typically teen, and sometimes that's uh, wonderful, and sometimes it's awful. Um, but getting back to what you said about um, concern about mental health, uh, you know, sometimes it does lead to a breakdown. And what I always want to say to parents is, you know, this doesn't mean that your teen is broken. Um, this doesn't mean your teen can't be mended. It's very difficult. And there are certain cases where, you know, professional help really needs to step in. But um, you know, they can mend, they will probably mend, uh, the, the odds are in their favor. And it's not, you know, it's not something that's broken inside them. It's, um, you know, a, a, a problem that they're in some way working on, and um, they can be helped to work on it more efficiently. Yeah, I like this idea that it's sort of part of, you know, education as it were they're teaching them how to deal with difficult emotions that often will be more challenging as they you know get into adult life I mean it seems to me that the heart of this is that communication you know maintaining that conversation maintaining that kind of open door but teens are typically very uncommunicative um how do you communicate with a teen that really doesn't seem to want to communicate with you Well, most teens do ultimately want to communicate with their parents. I mean, you know, there are teens uh, who have had um, a really difficult childhood where they have learned that being close to someone, you know, in their experience, being close to someone is um, extremely painful and they want to avoid it. But, you know, most of your listeners will be uh, parents who, uh, you know, are positively engaged. And uh, so it's learning anew the signals that you spent so much time 
watching out for in infancy. You know, this is when my teen is willing to talk. This is when I have to leave my my teen alone. This is when um, touching my teen uh, will have a positive response. This is when my teen really um, can't um, tolerate being touched, needs to be left alone. Um, you know, showing um, the openness and the curiosity. I really want to know about you. You know, I'm not. It, so I, I think you know, parents have to balance, make sure that their conversations with the teen are not always about the parents' agenda. <laughs> you know, good morning. This is what I think you should do, and this is what we're doing today, and no argument about that. I mean, sometimes you you need conversations like that, but you want to balance them with something that's much more open. And it can start with little things, you know, um, what did you think about that uh, you were watching, that we were watching together? What do you think about this? Uh, would you like this? Do you still like this? Um, is this helpful to you? And just, you know, again, saying I've got this person is now changing rapidly and doesn't quite know what they're changing into, may have some sense of who they hope they're changing into, but uh, they want a parent's, um, you know, mirroring to help define, help them define themselves just as they did in infancy and childhood. So you know, it's learning the it's learning the ropes again, and I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying you're going to get it right every time, but you don't have to. I mean, you know, uh, people talk about being how important it is to be responsive to a child, and parents worry, um, oh, I missed this, and uh, and I messed up, and you know, I've ruined my, <laughs> I've ruined the relationship, or I've damaged my child. Well, in fact, um, it's been found that as long as a parent is in sync, responsively in sync, about 30% of the time of their interactions, then that's sufficient to do a very good job. You don't need to do it all the time, but to give a model of what getting it right looks like is enough. That is so reassuring to hear. 30%, that's fantastic, because you definitely get that idea that good enough is sort of 80% of the time. But actually, I feel that I get it wrong way more than 20% of the time. So hearing that as long as they have an idea of what you know good enough looks like, that I'm not damaging my children psychologically. Well, indeed. And, uh, you know, the concept of good enough doesn't only mean that it's important, you know, that you don't have to be perfect. It also means that um, being perfect is not great for your for your child. That um, it models an unrealistic and uncomfortable sense of what a relationship is. So it's very good for us all to um, experience a relationship that can break apart or seem to rupture at one point, but then mends again. So rupture and repair, you learn that um, you learn the resiliency of relationships, that they can take a bash here and there, that they won't be um, working well, well-oiled all the time. But 
it will return to something that's very comfortable. So that's another very important lesson that they learn from, you know, this conflict with their parents. And it makes sense. You know, the closest friends I have are the ones that I've fallen out with. In fact, the closest relationships I have are with my sisters. And that's probably because as children, no holds were barred. We beat each other up. We said the meanest things to each other. And we're so, so, so close nowadays, probably because of that, because we had so much rupture in our relationship. We managed to repair it. Yes, and you're no longer afraid of conflict. It's not something that um, you have to step back from. And stepping back from that kind of conflict can make the relationship a bit brittle because, you know, you, you, you feel it's fragile and it isn't. Yeah. And I suppose it's really important for our children to know that as well. Um, yes. That, you know, just because there has been rupture with the parents, that doesn't mean that's the end of the world, but also for, for their relationship with their peers and potentially romantic yes. relationships going forward. Absolutely. Yes, it's a good life lesson. (laughs) I'm thinking about, you know, some teenage behavior is often very um, antisocial and wrong. And, um, you know, there are definitely times with my children and my parents, I'm sure had it with me saying, no, this is not okay. At what point do you stop being the understanding parent who says, okay, fine, you know, it's the hormones, it's the adolescence, I'm going to try and understand it to say, I have had enough of this, you're grounded, or you're whatever it is, you're you're punishing them, essentially. Is that ever okay? Oh, of um, course. Does it ever work? Yes. <laughs> well, first of all, um, punishing teens um, is often necessary. Um, teens tend to be more receptive to carrots than to sticks, you know, so um, sometimes um, it's better to say, if you in the future show me you're not this irresponsible, you're not this reckless, um, you're not this inconsiderate, then we can think about something that that you like um, and that will have a positive effect, you know. Um, But um, teens do need to learn that their um, actions have consequences and that they that consequence may be a problem for them, which they have to learn to solve. So so that's one thing. That's the sort of um, wise way of approaching discipline. But there will also be, because parents are human, there will also be um, the impulsive way of um, punishing your kid by (laughs) shouting at them and showing your great displeasure and disappointment because that's what you feel Um, and you can do that it's a good step then to say well this is an opportunity for me to say um, I was so disappointed because I thought you were responsible and you've done this and I don't understand it Um, and can you see what you've done and can you see why you did it in many cases, it doesn't really help to say, what were you thinking of? Why did you do it? Even though that's the question you want to ask, because, um, you know, the teen will be thinking, well, it was fun at the moment. You know, I'm looking at the whole world through the moment, and it seemed it seemed like a good idea at the moment. Um, so 
you know, it's 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 not going to be a simple conversation to have where um, the parents' wisdom is going to lead to enlightenment um, on the part of the teen. But it, you have to go through this. So, you know, I'm not against I'm not against punishment, and I don't think that understanding means that you're not going to lose your temper yourself. Um, that you have to put up and accept bad behavior. You know, you can say this is this is very hurtful to me. Uh, I'm really upset to hear you say this. I thought it was rude. Um, and that tends to be better than saying what a horrible person you are. <laughs> what, you know, what, what awful person have I raised? Things like that. I like that, you know, the idea that instead of saying, right, you're grounded, that mm. you sort of repackage it into, mm. until me, you show me that you're responsible enough mm. to, you know, be given the agency to go out. Yes. Because um, then you're essentially saying to them, I believe I ha you have it in you. You're not a totally bad yes, person. Yes, that's right. You're looking show me where that, yeah. that responsibility is is there. Absolutely. Yeah, so you're looking ahead to a more positive future as opposed to, you know, dwelling on the awful thing that's in the past. Yeah. And how important is it for parents to show their sort of extreme emotions? I mean, I'm just thinking back to this morning when my children were just being really testing and I dropped them yeah. off and I cried because I felt I was such a bad mother because they pushed all my buttons. Yeah. And yet we're brought up to sort of think we mustn't kind of cry out of frustration in front of our children. But could that potentially be beneficial? How important is it for us to sort of show our frustration and show our children that we too find it hard? Or is it better to sort of, you know, just take a deep breath, try and present a stronger kind of view as possible? What's the best there? Well, uh, you know, think back to the 30% rule and, and the rupture and repair. So, I mean, parents are going to lose it. Um, uh, and I think it would be pretty annoying to have a parent who never did. You know, you would feel you were never um, able to get in there and press those buttons. Uh, you know, <laughs> you want, you may want to be uh, uh, younger people, younger kids in particular, want to know that they can rile their parents. That you know, the parent who is so powerful, they have power over some power over them. Um, so it's not a it's not something I would recommend as a model, but I you know it's inevitable that it happens, and I don't think that it's helpful to deny that it happens. Or certainly, there's um, no evidence that you know losing your temper sometimes um, damage psychologically damages children. It's another way of learning that um, you know people can be overwhelmed, but then they can step out of that, they can regain composure, uh, they can maintain self-respect and authority, even though they've lost it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a life lesson. It's not one that you want to teach deliberately, but, you know, it will happen and um, you can learn, they can learn from it. Well, exactly. And actually that modeling of almost apologizing and saying, I wasn't proud of the way I behaved. Yeah, you know? yeah. As a parent, and you, I suppose as a parent, you are the most important person in their life, especially yeah. as they're transitioning into those teenage years, to say, to hear someone say, I'm sorry, and I wasn't, I'm not proud of that behavior. You're giving them the permission to do it. And actually- Yeah, and maybe also explain why. You know, I, I, 
you know, I was disappointed that you were so unresponsive. You know, I needed you to get ready. It was important. And you were really messing me about, uh, you know, depending on the child's age, they can understand that. A teen would understand that. Might not mind, but would understand it. And in terms of how, you know, you, when you refer to teens, it's it's sort of broad. And we know that children mature at slightly different rates. Yeah. Um, I mean, presumably... When would you say this is all starting, this kind of disruption in their brain? And um, is it at 13 or is it sometimes a little bit before that? Oh, it's sometimes a little bit before. And uh, so it's at about 10 or 11 that um, you get the that mass of um, grey matter, which... Um, offers opportunity for brain development, but also leads for a period to uh, a lot of inefficient messaging uh, between the different parts of the brain. Um, What's also unexpected is how long adolescence lasts, because, you know, we think that 18, 19, 20, you should be all grown up. Well, um, if you look at... um, brain development, it's really not until the age of 24 that you have a nice streamlined brain with um, not too much gray matter, um, you know, not not this dense thicket that confuses things, and also very strong um, connections to um, to the good bits, the good kind of connections, the, the, the uh, coordination, and um, integration. You don't get that until about the age of 24. And this should be really part of our justice system because a lot of 14, 15, 16 year olds who uh, do awful things, you know, you spoke about antisocial things. This is not only in the home, but outside the home, getting them caught into the um, judicial system. Uh, you know, by the age of 24, they'll be perfectly fine uh, citizens. Um, And, you know, a lot of people have been working very hard to get that in more deeply into the system of our um, structures of our society. Um, But we're not quite there yet. That makes sense, although it's definitely a little bit scary, the idea that uh, the teenage years last a lot longer. And the other thing is that when I think back to my teenage years, I don't remember any of this. I mean, I I kind of think my parents had a really easy ride, but I'm sure it's more that my brain has literally let go of those more challenging moments. Is that the case, that we typically don't remember the... Well, yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, because in some ways you remember more about teen experiences. So for the rest of your life, the music that you came to love as a teen will resonate with you in a certain way, because that's when, you know, your brain was being formed in certain ways, and it, um, you know, it influenced it. And so it sort of fits in uh, to who you are, and it has a special meaning to you. Um, On the other hand, it's sometimes difficult you know, just as it's difficult to remember our very early years because our brain was structured in a very different way or lacked structure at that time about timing, things like that. So it's difficult to construct memories from our very, very early years. It can sometimes be difficult to remember 
the context of um, teen emotions. So you might remember that you felt a great deal of irritability with your, you know, you were really irritated with your parents, but you don't quite remember why. Or you remember, um, you know, an overwhelming love or crush you had, uh, but you can't quite remember what it was that seemed so wonderful. So, you know, your brain's really taking you to a different place and it may be difficult then to construct um, the emotions of that almost different, um, different mentality. Well, I suppose it's probably not a bad exercise to have a chat with our parents and go, what was I like as a teenager and see how your, your memories differ. Indeed, yes, yes. Um, but, you know, some parents do have an easy ride, partly because they're expecting, their expectations are so, uh, um, you know, are so awful. And so they're, if they don't have that, they may, the, the continuing relationship may be more salient, will be more salient in some, um, you know, parenting pairs than in others. And, um, and for that, the parents will have a, a much rosier sense of how it was um, in the teen years. I've often thought, you know, I think a lot about kind of parenting, doing this podcast and teaching the antenatal classes that I do. And I think often at the kind of heart of parental love is that unconditional love. And you obviously want your child to know that you will love them, whatever they do. I think sometimes <laughs> considering that teenagers have then suddenly a bit more power, it is still important for them to understand that you will love them, whatever. But do you tell them that explicitly? Do you make absolutely sure that whatever they do, you will love them? Or is it better not to be so sort of upfront about that and manifest that feeling in your actions and your listening as, uh, you know? Well, I think that teens um, are more interested in a parent recognizing them, understanding them, seeing who they are or who they are becoming than they are in love. And sometimes teens say to me, oh, well, yes, she loves me, but that's because she, I'm her daughter. She's my mother. She doesn't really know who I am. And it's that that they're concentrating on. So um, if a parent says, I love you unconditionally, you know, they know that they've got that message um, and they're not interested in hearing it again. What they're interested in is, um, are, do you have the parental energy um, to get to know who I am and understand my signals uh, and stop misinterpreting me and, um, you know, telling me I'm rude when I what I want is to have a better conversation. So it, it's, a, it's a different balance. And that's where the joy comes in, because obviously yes, you're indeed where the joy comes in. Yes, yes. Learning. Uh, what an exciting um, person your child is becoming. Yeah. Well, Terry, it's been so lovely to chat to you. You fill me with with lots of, of hope. And um, it's certainly a really refreshing way to sort of look at, at the teenage years, which certainly for me are, are approaching fast. <laughs> yes. 
Um, uh, Terry is the author of 10 books um, exploring familial relationships. Her latest, The Teen Interpreter, A Guide to the Challenges and Joys of Raising as Adolescents, is available now. Um, Terry, thank you for your time today. And for all of those of you listening, thank you for listening to this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Terry and me, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.